Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Blog Talk Radio. back in time to seasons past, when 22 men graced the rugged fields of yesterday, fighting for one more first down, one more yard gain, one final score which would bring victory after 60 minutes of battle on the gridiron. Tonight, we'll explore the world of gridiron greats. Welcome to Gridiron Greats Football on the Gridiron Greats Publishing and Broadcasting Network in conjunction with Swick Enterprises. We're live from the Wallingford for Connecticut home of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and I'm Bob Swick, publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and I'll be your host for the show. Gridiron Greats is the only publication in America which focuses upon the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. We cover 140-plus years of football history and memorabilia, and you can find us on the web at gridirongreatsmagazine.com. We're sponsored in part by MSB Sports Cards for one of the largest selections of football memorabilia and cards on the web. Check out their website at msbsportscards.com. And we're also sponsored in part by BST Auctions. Check out their information on their upcoming auction at bstauctions.com. And make sure you register and become a bidder at bstauctions.com. It is at this time I'd like to introduce... My co-host, he is a senior contributing writer to Gridiron Greats Magazine, a football memorabilia historian specializing in pre-World War II items, in particular Red Grange, and also Seattle Seahawks items, in particular Steve Lord. He hails from Portland, Oregon. Mr. Joe Squires, Joe, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Captain. Good to be here, sir. And it is a... uh, a very, very sunny, crisp day here in Connecticut. Got over a little uh, freezing rain, ice storm yesterday, and we're back in business. And the winter continues, to say the least. What's the opposite? What's the opposite of sunny in Connecticut? Raining in Portland, I, Oregon. I, yeah. I uh, I appreciate the warm weather as the years pass. That's all I can say. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm missing go. Australia right about now. I'm missing Australia again, that's for sure. Wow. wow. Two, well, two months ago, I was in my bathing suit uh, scuba diving in the Coral Sea. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Now I'm, now I'm shivering. Oh, well, hey, these things happen. It'll be it'll be summer. The, the National's just around the corner, Captain. It'll be August soon. That's true. 
That's true. Very true. So, Joe, what would you like to talk about? Well, there's uh, several people have asked me, you know, uh, you, Bob Swick, being the ambassador of football, the captain of our, uh, the captain of our hobby, a couple of people have asked me what it's like to, you know, be so close to the sun, to be so close to, uh, you know, to, to Bob Swick. You know, a couple people have asked me, you know, what do you like, et cetera. And, uh, I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but my signature line is a picture of, you know, of Bob smiling, you know, on a, on a couple sports card chat rooms, which always cracks people up. <laughs> Didn't somebody at a national a couple of years ago meet you and thought you were me because I keep your picture in my signature line? True. true. I, had a couple of people say, yeah. I had a couple of people say to me straight out, they, they said, hi, Joe, how are you? And I said, no, <laughs> I'm not Joe Squire. And they got that's a little a, confused. I had, to, I had to explain <laughs> to them, and um, they, they picked it up afterwards. So I said, you got to yeah, read a that's, little that's more my, closely. Than that. Yeah, that's my tip of the hat to the captain is a picture of you. But so I uh, – I had an idea. Bob and I bounce ideas off of each other for for each show, and I basically told him, I said, there's you know, people who have asked more about you. I mean, you're the host of the show, but oftentimes, you know, you've got you've got an amazing collection. You've been in the hobby all of your life. You are kind of the hobby. Kind of interesting to turn the tides and interview you. And because, uh, trust me, if you weren't the host of the show, you'd be probably one of the first guests that would be on the show because you are the hobby captain. <laughs> so I thought it'd be kind of interesting to turn the tables and, uh, and, and interview you. So uh, are you okay with that? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm prepared. I'm prepared. I, hope I haven't are. been interviewed That's about my collection in quite a few years, so it's, uh, <laughs> this should be interesting. <laughs> okay. A lot of these I kind of know the answers to because I've known you for so long, but I figure maybe our listeners don't. So, without further ado, we're going to interview the captain of our hobby, the ambassador of football, Mr. Bob Swick. Mr. Swick, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> uh, so... I'm curious how uh, what were what was your first inclination? How did you get into the hobby? You know, uh, you know what was your first rub with football and collecting football memorabilia? Well, it happened many many years ago, 1965. I was uh, seven years old, mm-hmm. and I was in a. Um, I lived in a very small rural town, if, and, and we used to go to the town next to us, which was a little bigger. I grew up in North Brantford, Connecticut. And um, in Brantford, Connecticut, they had a couple little drugstores back then, true drugstores, where they had boxes of football cards available for sale. And at that time, packs were a nickel. So I had a dime in my hand, and I bought one pack of the big cards and one pack of the small cards, meaning that I bought one pack of the 1965 Tops American Football League cards and one pack of the Uh 1965 Philadelphia cards. And uh, proceeded on the way home, I started to chew the gum, and I started studying the pictures of the players, and I noticed immediately that the the bigger cards were much more attractive to me because they were more colorful, uh, which were the 65 AFL tall boys. And every yep. time I went to Brantford, every time I went to Brantford there, I would bug my father and my mother for a nickel or a dime, and I would continue to buy uh, a, a packs at a time. I had no conceptualization of sets. I had 
I had no idea what a checklist was or anything like that, but I kind of associated the card with the player and watching football on yeah. uh, Sunday afternoon, which I normally did. I started to associate the players more with the cards, so on and so forth. I was a very voracious reader when I was young. I used to read uh, the paper daily. I poured over the sports pages nonstop. And um, wow. that that's basically my, my first introduction to football cards. There, there's another aside to this. If I fast forward to 1967, I bought my first football Sports Illustrated magazine. And uh, oh, wow. the, uh, the, I, I just poured over. I must have read that. A copy year, you know, uh, over and over again. I bought a sports magazine, and I find the world of Street and Smiths back in 1967. I bought the professional one, not realizing there was a college one. And again, this was big money for me. I mean, I was putting out thirty, forty cents at a time, yeah, yeah. which could have gotten me yeah. more football cards. But I liked the magazine, and I wanted to read the information too. So that was so, part of it. So, so I'm curious. Why football and not baseball as a young man? I, I, I think two reasons. I did, I did follow basically all four sports, team sports, football, baseball, basketball, and hockey. Uh, I enjoyed baseball, listening to it on the radio. I played it when I was a kid. Uh, football, I was just totally mesmerized by it because that took up Sundays. And uh, I was very content just watching the game on TV, you know, the old black and white TV. I was pretty much left alone, and I would watch, amazingly, one game at 4 o'clock and one game at uh, – I'm sorry, one game at 1 o'clock and one game at 4 o'clock. So I had two games, and on Saturdays, inevitably, there would be one or two college games on. And I would watch, try to watch those as I could. Uh, but I always thought football was deep because of the scoring system. Six points for a touchdown – one point afterwards, three points for a uh, a uh, field goal, so on and so forth. So I thought the addition to the yeah. scoring was interesting. And it was an action sport, too, so I, I enjoyed that. There was yeah, a lot yeah. of action to it. So, totally. But I, I did enjoy all, all four team sports for whatever reason, even though I did buy some baseball cards when I was younger. Uh, I just I had a, a stronger enjoyment for the football cards. Think about how cool that is. You ripped 65 tall boy wax packs. Do you know how expensive a 65 tall boy wax pack would be right now? Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. And I've always <laughs> thought about that. At any milestone birthday, maybe I'll break down yeah. and spend the $5,000 to buy a uh, a pack. But then I don't trust the packs because, to me, they're going to yep. probably be a reseal or whatever. Now, once I buy a uh, hermetically sealed, graded yep. wax pack, and well, then everybody will be yelling at me that I just opened up, you know, a $5,000 well, wax pack to get $5 commons or whatever type of thing. Well, but here's what's event, fascinating. Like, like five years ago for your birthday, we were, at a, we were at a national, and I gave you a GAI-sealed uh, 65 Philly wax pack. And right. we and opened it a, while we were while we were dinner. Yep. Yeah, I, I we, we opened it while you were dinner. When, and, yeah, I had a stroke when you gave it to me, and then sadly it was a it was a rewrap because we we both agreed was, that the yep. cards were a little nasty in there one way or the other. But it was fun. It brought back nice I, memories for I me. I think you you said uh, the poster inside was in the wrong position or something like that. And I I thought that was so fascinating. 
here was a professional, you know, GAI for what it's worth, but here's a sealed wax pack. I hand it to you. You open it, you're like, this has been resealed. I can tell because of, and, and I thought it was like the poster or the gum was in the wrong spot. I, no, something the, very technical. What ha- yeah, what happened was the insert in that 65 pack, which I, I want to say was the, uh, the um, it was like a letter rub-off or a team rub-off, was not there. And the gum was actually, there's no way the gum could have been in the position it was in because they yeah. had no yeah, that's right. gum stain no gum stain to that card. So those are the things. And that's plus, right. said that the, the cards were pretty much off at the same that's time. Right. But it was fun, fun yeah. to, say the, to say the least. I still have, believe it or not, that wrapper and those five cards ah. in my little, little display area. So uh, oh. it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. That's pretty cool. cool. Oh, that, that that's awesome. I love it. Yeah, I my you know, I same when I was 7 I started opening, you know, so 81 and 84 wax packs. Sometimes I look back at that and go, man, I'm buying these for a quarter and uh, you know, now, you know, now a, so a box a box was worth $5, now a box is worth, you know, $1,000. So Oh yeah, I know. Someone out know. there, someone out there has put a tracker together of the stock market versus unopened football wax. So, but yeah, tall boys. Yeah, so going exactly. back to those. Yep. So going back to those wax packs you opened. I mean, what was the most memorable card that you pulled from those wax packs? I mean, there's some pretty, well, pretty high-end cards in both those sets. Well, in the sixty, it, and this is what happened in the sixty-five tall boys set. I pulled the Namath, and I just thought that was yeah. pretty exciting because I, I was watching him play for the Jets because I was one of the two teams I got to watch every Sunday, the Jets and the Giants. And in my yeah. uh, Philly pack in 65, I, I pulled a uh, Bart Starr. And again, not realizing, you know, these were, you know, quasi, you know, very valuable cards at the time. I played with them. I read them. I, I studied them nonstop. Fortunately, I didn't write on them or anything like that. But make a long story short, the, those were the two key cards. And that 65 Namath card is still in my 65 suck. So... That was my next. That was my next question. I love it. How, how many people in the hobby can say a card that they pulled when they were seven is still in their set? <laughs> I, I think I'm one of the few. So, so needless to one say, uh, you know, the, you know, needless to say, the captain is a little, uh, little, you know, OCD when it comes to his collecting. Even back when he was seven. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I was. I, I was I was very guarded of things <clears throat> as far as the ownership. I didn't have a lot of stuff, so I, I had a. I still I could still picture the shoebox I kept all my cards in, and I and I just I had it right by my my bed on a nightstand, and I would just pull them out and look at them. That's what I did in I love days. it. <laughs> all right, uh, fast forwarding quite a few years. You're a, you're still a young collector. I, I, I always imagine you with a big bussy mustache, even when you were seven years old. So, uh, you're a you know handsomely mustachioed young man, and you started writing for Sports Collectors Digest. Can you describe how you uh, how you got into deciding? You know what? I, I want to start writing for this. I want to be involved in the hobby. I know enough about the hobby that I want to start contributing. Because that 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 kind of was your segue into Gridiron Greats. Well. What happened was 1988, I got interviewed by Rich Morazzi, who wrote a feature of my uh, card collection, football card collection, and my knowledge of football cards. And shortly afterwards, I was contacted by them asking, asking me to write a 
uh, column for them or individual articles on oddball football cards because there was really nothing being written at the time. So I started writing. Uh, I, I would do a bunch of articles, send them in. Uh, they used to do back then in 89 and 90, uh, once a month, big football issue with football cards. And they were published one or two oh, wow. were all the articles articles that I would write. And then that led into asking them to – I wanted to, really wanted to do a column on football publications. So I got my own column. It was called Turning the Pages. It lasted one <laughs> and only issue because right after that, we had the great purge of Sports Collectors Digest where they basically let go every freelance writer they had. They had a new editor come in, and it was just a complete uh, cleaning of the house there. Long story short, I fast forward to 1993. I started to self-publish my own, excuse me, uh, newsletter called Bob Swick's Football Times, and that uh, basically wow. dealt with football cards, memorabilia. It's a real small Xerox uh, issue that I used to come out with quarterly. Excuse me. And uh, long story short, that lasted up to 1999. Frank Rose started Gridiron Greats roughly in 2002. I went to, I started writing for him about a year later, and then we transitioned. Frank got rid of the magazine. I picked it up in 2008, and that leads us to Gridiron Greats issue 59, which is in the mail right now. Wow. So Frank reached out to you. You saw Frank. Oh, were you and Frank good friends? Because I remember when you bought Gridiron from him. I mean, that was big news in our hobby. Uh, were you yeah, and Frank good friends? Well, we were, we were more acquaintances than anything else. I mean, I, 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 you know, I knew Frank from the magazine. He knew me from my writing and basically, you know, had a, he, he had to move on. He had other obligations. He couldn't do the magazine anymore. So I basically took it over to keep it going. And that's where we're, you know, basically we're still trying to, uh, we're still doing what he started out to do back in 2002. So it's been been a very, very interesting ride, to say the least, to say the least with the magazine. So, uh, but I, Captain, I really believe we, excuse me, have to, we, we really have brought a lot of different card sets information to the hobby. We try to grow and nurture the hobby. And I think that's probably since 1988 what I've been attempting to do with football cards yeah. and memorabilia. And hopefully uh, well, the, the hobby will stay strong for many, many years. Well, Captain, and you've obviously, you're obviously part of the hobby. You've, been, you've seen a swath of the hobby for you know, tra- you know, transpiring many decades. What do you think is the future of the hobby? Because, I mean, I know even you stopped collecting modern-day you know, football cards because – you know they're just they're just too you know there's just too many uh so what do you think is the future of our beloved hobby my my friend i think what it i think eventually there'll be a major contraction in the amount of sets that are out there and the amount of cards printed i also believe that collectors are going to be more difficult to come by in the future because mm-hmm. they didn't get the start like i got or you got type of thing yep but i think exactly once people once people get the disposable income, they like buying their childhood memories. And for many of them, they'll remember, you know, stuff from the 80s, from the 90s, from the zero zeros, and they're going to start going back and trying to buy it. And uh, that, to me, is the hope for the hobby, that there are enough of those type of people going in and to keep the hobby going based on that. I think that's very important. So, 
Stuff that I talked about. I'm, nothing different. Nothing yep. different, in my opinion, of what I've said over the years. And in fact, my column, this issue in Gridiron Greats, issue fifty-nine, discusses it yet again. So I just hope you know, I, I you know, Cleveland will be a good good show to see how many younger kids will be there with their parents, so on and so forth. And if they just run and grab well, the free cards, or they actually poke around and you know. And, and look at other things. And again, any kid that came to my table, especially in Atlantic City, you got a big handful of cards of his favorite team. And I'm not talking about just all, you know, 1991 pro set. I throw in, you know, some 60s and 70s cards there just to get them a yeah. place to try to look at something. And hopefully they'll, they'll catch the bug from it. That, that's important. That's really important. You're and absolutely right. Well, I, for one, will be attending the National in Cleveland this year. And as well, I'm bringing my nine, my nine year old son Xander. So uh, I'm, I'm bringing my boy along. The future of the hobby is coming with me to Cleveland, sir. Well, he better <laughs> hit my table, and he'll have his own package ready for him. And that'll be uh, compliments of gridiron greats. Joe, thank you for the interview. I have to move on with our show Absolutely. because we have a special guest. I do appreciate being interviewed. It's been a long time. It still brings back a lot of good memories for me of when the hobby was I, uh, was was very very young. And again, one quick story. I, my honor. That I, my honor, Bob. My honor. I, quick story that I always say. Back in the '80s, I used to walk around to the tables and ask for football cards, and I would have to mm-hmm. keep a lookout so nobody saw me. And the cheese box would come out from the back of the table. And the guy would say, give me $5 and get out of here. So I'd pull out my $5 bill, give it to him, and I, I never knew what I was going to get out of those uh, out of those cheese boxes. There were some incredible finds over the years, to say the least. I'm just looking wow. for being at a tag sale here locally and picking up the Dunlop cart for like 5 or $10 from the uh, Mayo set. So I'm still waiting for that experience. Hopefully it will happen soon. <laughs> All right. I'd like to welcome our special guest. He is the author of Fields of Friendly Strife and its companion blog, fieldsoffriendlystrife.com. Combining 25 years of research experience with the insight of a former college football coach, he's blended the familiar and strange to provide insight into the evolution of football, the Rose Bowl, and the American experience during the World War I era. Deeply researched, the book Fields of Friendly Strife is a fun and informative read for fans of military and football history. I know I can say this as a fact. It's probably one of the most fascinating combination of football and military history books I've read in years. <clears throat> he hails from southeast Michigan. I'd like to welcome to our show today Mr. Timothy P. Brown. Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, Bob. Thank you. Uh, looking forward to, to chatting with you for a bit here. I gotta say, I gotta start off by saying that that, that was a very, very interesting book, and uh, it was the type of book that, I, and people who know me know when I I read a lot, and I, I I normally read at night, right before I go to bed, and that was the kind of book where you got to go to bed very, very early because it's the type of book you don't want to put down, uh, because <laughs> you want to know what happens, type of thing. And again, my wife Brenda always says, "Are are you shutting the light off? Are you going to sleep?" Why don't you get up and finish reading if you got a reason? Shut the light. So I had to do it in two nights instead of my normal one night, but it was a great read. And I'd like to start off by asking you, how did you become interested in the Rose Bowl 
And uh, I know you, had, you, you did at one time, I don't know if you still do, collected the Rose Bowl memorabilia. Yeah, so, you know, I think my kind of fascination with the Rose Bowl is probably maybe typical of uh, you know, a classic Midwestern kid. Uh, grew up in a sports-oriented family. And, you know, for me, New Year's Day and then especially the Rose Bowl was, you know, just uh, the ultimate in, in sports. Uh, maybe the Olympics back then was, uh, you know, would have uh, run with run with the Rose Bowl. But, you know, I just always kind of just loved the Rose Bowl. And uh, so, you know, you just mentioned people as they get a little bit older, they start looking back and collecting things from their uh, from their early days. And so about 20 years ago, I started, uh, started collecting just kind of random football tickets, college football tickets. Uh, but... Mm-hmm just decided, you know, there were tens of thousands of games and I could never collect them all. So I just narrowed it down to Rose Bowl tickets mm. only. And I really stuck with that for about 15 years. I've, you know, since expanded to, you know, to buy some other things like the, the ribbons that people wore to have sideline access or, you know, that the officials wore. And now more recently mm-hmm. because of the book that I've, that I've written, uh, I'm looking a lot, you know, starting to buy a few things that are pre-World War II uh, military teams, like the Quantico Marines and, you know, those kinds of folks. Mm-hmm. But I you know, right. I think I, I still could fit my entire collection inside of one piece of luggage. So it'd be tight, but I think I could still do it. So it doesn't take that <laughs> long. <of> <laughs> okay. Unfortunately, I can't say that, nor can Joe. But, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, I don't, I, Jim, I don't even think I could fit my Steve Largent collection in one suitcase. So. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Well, it, you know, it, very it, true. it was a good way to, good way to remain focused. <laughs> exactly. Hey, I'm, I, I'm ex, I'm, I'm ex-Navy. Uh, you know, I was in the military for six years. So, I mean, I, I, I love the title of your new book, uh, you know, Friends of the Friendly Stripe, the Doughboys and Sailors of World War II Rose Bowls. Uh, so something a little near to my heart. How'd you, how'd you come up with the idea? How'd you come up with that focus for you know, for just that era for your book? Yeah, so this might take a, a minute or two to explain, but hopefully it'll provide some context. Um, you know, so I, I said I'd been collecting Rose Bowl material and I'd been reading articles and a you know, handful of books about it. And I thought I knew a fair amount about it. And um, so, you know, for a long time, I was aware that the uh, military teams or service teams had played in the 1918 and 19 Rose Bowls, but I had never really, mm-hmm. you know, looked into the topic in terms of why that happened. Um, and then about a year ago, uh, not not well, a year and a half ago, I bought a, a a program for a playoff game to get into the 1919 Rose Bowl, and I'd never heard of that playoff series before. Um, but as I, you know, so I kind of started looking into it, and you know, I, I initially started researching it just because I thought if I could find out which teams were in the playoffs, I'd be able to spot items and basically buy them on the cheap because nobody else would know what it was. That, you know, people wouldn't even know what they were selling. And in, in doing that, uh, one of the first articles I came across was an article written by John Beckett, and. He was the captain of the Mare Island Marines in the 1918 game. And he wrote an article on the 50th anniversary of that game. And in the article, he mentioned that nearly half the guys who played in that game 
subsequently were killed oh. in action in World War One and World War Two. Oh. And it was oh one of those stories that, I, yeah, I mean, I, I was kind of, uh, you know, I just thought it was an incredible statistic. Um, and so I just wanted to kind of figure out, well, you know, how did that occur and why did it occur? And but as I tried to find out more about it, I just found that there wasn't anything written about it. And so I started, uh, you know, just started researching it. And in order to figure out how it happened, I had to figure out who all the guys were that were on those rosters and what happened to, to them, you know, through at least World War II. Um, and so, you know, neither the Rose Bowl nor the military museums around the country had information on yeah. those rosters. So then I had to kind of put it together by scratch, uh, track down all these guys. And, and uh, you know, in the course of it, you know, I, I identified 178 guys who were on the roster at some point in the season. And I was able to you know, find out what happened to 168 of them. So there's 10 guys I still haven't figured out. Oh. Uh, you know, hit a pretty high wow. percentage of them. Um, so, and, you know, I ended up... And thinking, what yeah, were the results well, of the 178? Yeah, so what happened is uh, there were 32 guys who played in the 1918 Rose Bowl. And, you know, part of the story here is that the the story John Beckett told was, you know, basically a tall tale. Um so one of the guys who played in the, the 1918 Rose Bowl was actually killed in action. Now, there were two others who dressed for the game um, who were Beckett's teammates who um, were killed in you know, marine aviation accidents early in the 20s. And then there were three other guys who were on you know, the team rosters or predecessor team rosters during the, the 1917 season who were also killed in action. So, it's kind of depending on how you count, you know, one guy, four guys, and six guys who died in military service. Yeah. Um, so, you know, basically the book kind of walks through the, the evolution of football to that point, and the game was quite different. It has had rules in place that, were, that we'd find quite odd, you know, today. Um, and then it kind of follows, the, you know, their seasons. Um, the guys on the 18 Rose Bowl teams – follows them as they go to battle in Europe. And then uh, after the armistice, it kind of tracks, um, you know, tracks the 1918 season and the 1919 Rose Bowl and then basically tracks those guys and kind of summarizes what happened to them uh, through the, you know, the course of their lives. I'd like to interject two points here. Number one, I, I think it is very true. And I, and, I don't remember where I actually read it, but I know it relates to you, is that there's not really, as much as there is a lot, there is not a lot written about World War One, and I think it's a very misunderstood war from a historical perspective. I honestly don't even know how it's taught in school anymore, even if it is taught anymore in, uh, let's say, high school or whatever. And at the second point, reading your analysis um, – Per basically those two seasons and and tying everything in to me was, was just an amazing piece of football history to read about. I really, I, I had had a clue about a lot of the things that you had mentioned there, with regards to, you know, the, the, the players and, and the, the teams and so on and so forth. So to me, that that's from a historical perspective, you really opened up a, a real 
um, I don't even know how, how, a good way to explain it. You really opened up a, a very, very major area of football history that was previously unknown up to this point. Because in all the years I've read about, read about early football, there's really very little, if anything, written about the early Rose Bowls, especially the Warriors. So that, that's, that's fascinating to me. And it's, 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 very, it's a very, very interesting read based on that. And um, I, I have to applaud you on that because that, 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 that really must have taken a, a lot of time, a lot of effort, and really, really diving into a lot of different areas of research just to try to come up with that information. So that, that, I, that I, I, I definitely wanted to, to point out to our, our listeners, and especially for those who uh, haven't picked up the book yet. Tell us a little bit about your blog retain, uh, pertaining to the book. Yeah, so, um, you know, you mentioned it earlier, but the, the blog is uh, fieldsoffriendlystrife.com. And if you're listening to the podcast, you might want to open it up because I will talk a, in a minute about my, uh, my collection that's displayed there. But um, so, you know, it basically was a – I opened the blog as – for really two purposes. One is just to uh, market the book and have a place for people to go to, you know, get the links to go buy it on Amazon or wherever it may be. So some of it's just pure, you know, marketing the book. But then um, on an ongoing basis, what I'm doing is writing blog posts um, to just kind of fill in, fill in the gaps. So there were lots of stories that were left on the editing room floor uh, in, in writing that book, but I, you know, just felt like they were still worth telling. So, so some of some blog posts are really just they're literally, you know, pieces that were almost <laughs> word for word out of earlier drafts of the book. But I'm also doing things like other things that I'm doing is kind of a today in history look. So, I'll post one tomorrow, for instance, um, about something that happened a hundred hundred years ago tomorrow. Um, yeah. where a guy who was injured in the 1918 Rose Bowl, um, you know, spends a couple of weeks in the hospital at, in Pasadena and then finally gets back to Mare Island tomorrow, you know, in, so January 19th, 1919, or 1918, I should say. So, you know, I try to, try to do some things where it's um, talking about a day in history, but really just using that as an excuse to talk about some kind of broader issue. In his case, it's kind of, you know, knee surgery, what knee surgery was like, you know, uh, or the fact that they didn't do knee surgery, you know, back in those days. Yeah, so, that, yeah, it's just an example yeah, of that kind of thing. And then I'm also going to be doing some writing about uh, the evolution of the game and um, really trying to, hoping to try to get um, some coverage of just what I think of as kind of quirky issues. So, when did people first start using kicking tees or when did referees start wearing shirts that had stripes on them? Um, just things that hmm. are part of the game today that we just take for granted, don't even think about, but almost anything like that in the game itself uh, was started somewhere sometimes by somebody. So I'm just trying to uncover some of those stories and tell, tell those tales. That's very cool. I like it. And then, you know, from a collection standpoint, um, you know, I part of there's a drop-down menu on the on the site that, you know, lets you get to the to the team rosters, and another part 
uh, just displays my Rose Bowl ticket collection as well as my collection of the of kind of the worker ribbons that people wore. And so there's been 104 Rose Bowls played to date, but there are 105 sets of tickets because in mm-hmm. the 1942 game, there was a set of tickets printed for that game to be played in Pasadena, but because uh, that was scheduled shortly after Pearl Harbor was bombed, they moved the game uh, to Duke, you know, in North Carolina, and the game was played there. So a second set of tickets was printed for, for the actual game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I've been able to collect, I've got at least a stub or a full ticket for, uh, you know, 93 of the 105 that are out there and like 79 of the of those are full tickets. So, you know, I wow. again I, I focus on that for the most part, you know, and uh yeah, just over time I've just able to add one here and there and try to spend as little money as possible doing it. <laughs> um the other thing too is if you know, for people that are interested in, you know, reading some of these articles or, you know, blog postings I've also got a Facebook page, and then I I tweet out the blog posts as well. So kind of whichever method people right. prefer, um, you'll mm-hmm. latch on to one of them, and you know you'll get updated yeah. whenever a new posting comes up. Very cool. Hey, you you just you just touched on that you know that Rose Bowl, you know from 1941 that uh, you know that was in Pasadena after you know after Pearl Harbor. Uh, you know I, I actually have a ticket from that you know from that Rose Bowl you know, from the Pasadena one, and I, I have it just because of ex-military, and Oregon State played in that game, didn't they? Yeah, Oregon State uh, played Duke. Yeah, played Duke, okay. Yeah, that, and yeah, I, I think, think I have it because Oregon State, yeah. There's another, you know, good book uh, written about those teams uh, that's out there, hmm. you know, people can find that. It wasn't written by me, but yeah. you can find that out on Amazon. Yeah. So even even within my you know collection, I have a, a Rose Bowl ticket from that historic game because it was canceled from Pearl Harbor. Uh, yeah. Do you have any? You know, obviously you mentioned you have a you collect Rose Bowl tickets. Do you have any favorite uh, items? Any, any collectibles from the Rose Bowls that you know have you know caught your eye that are your favorites? Yeah. You know, I I, I really have. There's probably three favorites. Uh, definitely my number one is it's not a ticket, but it's a an usher's ribbon from the 1918 uh, tournament of oh, roses. Wow. So the Rose Bowl name wow. itself didn't come into play until 1923, um, when you know when the Rose Bowl was actually built. Um, so just the fact that that isn't you know I've got other I've got some game tickets and some other items from the seasons that the 18 and 19 teams played in, uh, but that's the only one that is directly the only item I've ever you know, acquired that is directly related to the game. Um, the playoff pro game program that I mentioned earlier, that kind of got me started on this whole thing. Um, that's also one of my favorites. It's one of those, you know, back then there were a fair number of football programs that were, um, that were printed on paper or cut out so that the program was the shape of a football. And so it's just kind of a, it's just a neat looking, uh, neat looking item, you know, and I, here and there, I picked yeah. up a couple other of those, you know, football shaped programs. And then yeah, when I, that goes, uh, that goes, that goes way back. I have a Carlisle Indian uh, program. I mm-hmm. think they played Brown 
you know, from 1911 or 1912 where it's shaped like a football. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, you know, Carlisle was, uh, you know, Pop Warner was coaching there during that time. Jim Thorpe was playing during that time. So, yeah, I mean, they were a top, you know, top, top program. Yeah. Um, I've heard of those two gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, they they seem to come up every once in a while. Um, <laughs> the, my Probably my third favorite is a relatively recent item, but it's the – I have a full ticket for the 1994 Rose Bowl game. And, oh, wow. you know, on the surface it's like, well, who cares? But um, I grew up in Wisconsin, and that was a game you – know, it was the first time the Badgers had been in the Rose Bowl for like 31 years. And so every everybody who could possibly do it, you know, got out of the snow in Wisconsin and flew out to, to get a little sun in Pasadena. <laughs> and um, a lot of them got there, and the travel agency that they booked with couldn't come up with the tickets that they had been guaranteed. And so, you know, what was a hot scalper's market got even crazier. And so, I mean, it was just kind of – if you're from Wisconsin and you're a Badger fan, it was just kind of a le- legendary event where every possible ticket was purchased and used. So, but mm-hmm. somehow at least one of them survived and it's in my greedy little hands. So I, you know, I, I get a kick out of it, you know, both for that and, you know, because it was the Badgers playing in it. Absolutely. <laughs> I think any item pre-World War II football college or professional is is very rare. We've talked about this numerous yep. times on the show. Yeah. Yep. Uh, we've written articles on it also. And I think uh especially for any of the major bowls, especially like the Rose Bowl or or you can go to Army Navy, Yale, Harvard, so yep. on and so forth. Anything pre World War Two is exceptionally valuable and, and is to me very rare. And I still don't understand for the life of me sometimes why the prices for those items are so, for lack of a better term, cheap compared to other items. Yep. You know what I mean? Couldn't so agree more. I, I, find, I, I find it fascinating when, you know, we've had so many collectors yep. on the show and uh, we've written about and, and the, their, their journey picking up these items, especially the early pieces of both college and, and professional football, are realistically very affordable. You know what I mean? And yep. the history behind it is just incredible. And it's just it's just amazing to me. And especially I mean, if you of those programs you mentioned about in the shape of a football, they were very popular yeah. late 1890s up to roughly basically World War One, And then, um, again, we went back to the you know normal size programs, so on and so forth. But to me, those are exceptionally rare. I mean, how many actually survived? And, and they have it. They're very fresh. Just incredible. Well, you know, they're very fresh. Incredible. They, they weren't bound like a normal magazine. They, they, a lot of them had had like uh, laces. You know the, you know the, you right, know, and, right. and, you know they had they, they had laces. So and that wears away. But yeah, no, we've we've talked about what, what you know. Think about you know fifty thousand tickets handed out to a Rose Bowl. How many people get inside and just throw their tickets away? And then how many people go home and throw the ticket away? And then how many people, you know, how many fires, how many floods have happened? Uh, you know, and mm-hmm. Bob here has mentioned before, you know, paper drives of the war where people scrapped everything. I mean, and just, 
you know, attrition. I mean, how many of those tickets got thrown out and how many have survived, you know, 60, 80, 100 years worth of, you know, tragedy worth of losses. So it's, they're so rare. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you, Captain. I can't ima- I can't believe how cheap some of these are. Exactly. Yeah, you know, I think exactly. they're just, you know, they, I, I agree, you know, they're rare because there's a lot of things I've looked for and have never even seen an image of, you know, especially, you know, some of the early Rose Bowl uh, tickets, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. You know, but I think some of that is, uh, you know, football, I think, is still very much uh, – I mean, the t- collectors I talk to, a lot of them are focused on one team. You know, it's their, yeah. their Michigan fans or Alabama fans or Georgia Tech fans or who, whatever school it may be. And so there could be a cool program for Auburn, but they don't care about that. They care about the Alabama right, program. Right. Right. You know, so I think, you know, maybe it's part of, you know, maybe that kind of regional or and state specific, uh, school specific, you know, uh, fascination is what, what keeps prices relatively low. Hmm. Well, to me, it's, to me, it's also a question in football, especially, I think there are much more or many more specific team college collectors, individual player collectors than there are in the other sports. And for I don't know many generalized collectors of football cards and memorabilia. I could probably name off the top of my head maybe four that I actually know in all the years I've been in the hobby. Everybody else is pretty much a generalized collector, uh, or um, I'm, I'm sorry, everybody. Uh, other people are, are a specific collector, meaning a college, a team, big Packers collector, or big like you said, uh, Alabama collector, so on and so forth. So I think that that's the difference in our in our sport as far as collecting is concerned. But at the same time, it's, it we I think we all agree a lot of this stuff is just so way undervalued. It's not even funny. But again, it also has to have a demand for it too, and that's the other sure. problem. You know, there's no demand. There's a, you know the price is not going to be there. Do you have a Tim? Yep. Do you have any interesting stories uh, about writing this book that you can share with our audience? Yeah, uh, how long is this podcast going to be? Because <laughs> I can go off. <laughs> All right, you're going to have to summarize it pretty. You got, you got four minutes on this. <laughs> yeah, so you know, there's just a lot of things. You know, I, um, you know, talking about that playoff series. You know, one of the things that was fun to find out was that, um, you know, that was, if not the first football playoff series it was surely one of the first and you know the first for that high level of, of a game and um you know so as they 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 laid out an elimination tournament and one of the things they failed to do was to figure out what would happen if two teams tied a game <laughs> and so you know they one of the teams you know two of the teams tied and so the you know basically the rose bowl committee had to you know, vote and say, okay, this team is going to advance. So, you know, it's like anything. You try something the first time and you don't get it right. And that's what happened in there. Um, Figure it out. You know, that, that same period in that same, you know, playoffs actually. Um, so Mare Island uh, sits in San, you know, extended San Francisco Bay. So while most teams traveled by train to get to their games, Mare Island often traveled by boat. And in the in the playoff series, their, their first game in the playoff series, they played Mather Field, which is an air training uh, field up in near Sacramento. And uh, the guys from Mather Field actually flew to the game, but 
you know, they didn't fly commercial. They flew the planes. <laughs> you know, they were, fly, you know, the team players were, were pilot, you know, trainees. So they flew, you know, one seaters, two seaters, and then went and, you know, landed and drove over to the game. And a wow. third team that was in that in that playoffs uh, was the San Pedro uh, submarine base, and they had a game in San Diego, so they traveled to the game by submarine. <laughs> so. Uh, you know, I gotta believe it. Was oh my one of the, gosh! One of the very few times that a football team, yeah, that they traveled to an away game by submarine. So you know that was that was kind of fun. But you know the the guys themselves, the players, um, you know the seventeen of the guys that played on these teams, and they were mostly guys from Great Lakes because you know football, pro football developed in uh, the Midwest and you know East. But uh, 17, you know, guys from these teams played in the NFL. Uh, three of them are NFL Hall of Famers. So George Hallis, Patty Driscoll, Jimmy Konzelman, you know, guys who wow. probably a lot of a lot of people want their football cards. But you know, those those were guys who played on some of these teams. Um, a couple of college football Hall of Famers, uh, coaches. Uh, so Charlie Bauman, and then a guy named Dick Romney, who played for Camp Lewis and. If that name sounds familiar, he is Mitt, Romney, Mitt Romney's uh, second cousin twice removed. <laughs> so same, same family. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite stories is about uh, there were five guys who played on these teams who also played in the major leagues. And um, one of the guys named Dick, uh, Dick uh, Reichel, and – so he was he only lasted a you know I think two years in the majors, but at the start of the twenty three season, he was with the the Boston Red Sox and they opened the season playing the Yankees in the brand new Yankee Stadium. And so in the first uh, in the third game of the season, he hits a home run, which turned out to be the second home run ever hit in Yankee Stadium. And oh, the first wow. one was hit by the first one was hit by some guy named Babe Ruth uh, in the first game of that series. You know, so, <laughs> so these guys you know, end up, you know, they're connected just as all kinds of, of greats, both in baseball and in, in football. Um, another guy that's kind of a favorite of mine is a guy named Lawson Sanderson. He played on the 19, in the 1918 Rose Bowl with uh, Mare Island. And mm-hmm. so he, he was, uh, he became, well, he's considered the father of dive bombing, you know, from a military oh, uh, aerial technique. Um, you know, he basically was the innovator that kind of created that that approach. Um, I'm sure, you know, he'd like to be known as the father of some other things, but he's the father of dive bombing. Um, <laughs> he also held he also held the he was the world's ha- fastest human in 1923 because he he set a, a speed record flying 259 miles an hour, you know, in a plane. And, uh, wow. but he ends up, he ends up in world war two. Um, he was the operations officer for the Marine aviation at Henderson field on Guadalcanal. Uh, you know, and this is like, you know, right after, uh, you know, the Marines landed on Guadalcanal. So, you know, some of these five of the guys who played for Mare Island ended up being Marine generals. And, you know, they were guys who were at, you know, the guys in this in this book end up, you know, they fought at Bellow Wood, they fought in Flanders, they fought at Musargon in World War One, in World War Two they're at Guadalcanal, they're 
two of them were at Pearl Harbor, um, Tarawa, Iwo Jima, and then one even you know, lasted until Korea. So, you know, these guys saw they saw a lot, <laughs> you know, in their careers. And then one last little note is just that uh, Beckett, the guy who I spoke about earlier, when he was in France, yeah. he was there with the 13th Marines, as well as you know a couple other guys from the teams. And uh, I discovered that in the process of re- re- researching the book, and it turns out that was the same unit that my grandfather was in. So at some point oh, wow. in all of this, oh wow, wow, uh, you know he, you know he likely ran into those guys. Yeah, no. well that's interesting. <laughs> well, Tim, I, I got to ask if you, you know. I mean, obviously you're a, a, a you know prolific writer. I've got a, a, any book ideas that are rumbling through your mind that you're working on for the future. And if you don't have any ideas, can I suggest one? Steve Largent, hero of the AFC West. <laughs> <laughs> Pat, should well, be a I, 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 yeah, I, I would need a pretty big advance to write that book. <laughs> <laughs> But but yeah, I'm willing. It'd be, a, willing. It'd, it'd be a top seller in Portland, Oregon. I, 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 <laughs> yeah, well, you know the the, the funny thing is, uh, you know, and Bob thinks your your comments earlier about uh, about the book, and so I haven't had problems with people who p- pick it up and read it. The problem is getting people to actually pick it up. <laughs> so, you know, anytime you write a book like this. You know, it's a it's a challenge. You know, getting it out there and getting publicity. So, you know, I appreciate you know being on on the podcast. But you know, if, if I do another one, um, I'll already kind of doing some work on it. And I mentioned the blog postings about kind of the quirky quirky developments in terms of yeah. you know, rule changes yeah. and mm-hmm. you know when certain you know uh, things got you know became part of the game of football. And so. I think those are kind of fun stories. And so if, if I do a second one at this point, it'll be a book about those kinds of issues. My, uh, I, my, my minor in college was American history. And one of my favorite books is just called, uh, you know, the, the, the founding fathers. And it's got like, you know, 10 little short stories, 15 pages each. And it just takes a little tiny bite of history, you know, like, uh, you know, assumption of debt versus the capital in DC and, you know, the dinner between Jefferson Adams and Alexander Hamilton. And just, it takes these little stories, you know, these stories that are very pivotal to American history and just sums them up in about 20 pages and puts a bow on it. I I thought that was, it's one of my favorite books. And as you were telling, Mm -hmm. you know, as you were describing that, I'm like, that would make a really cool book. You know, just Mm -hmm. here's, here's 10, 15 stories, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, why is it called the gridiron? You know, kind of stuff. Oh, I, can, I can tell. I can tell you that if you want to know. <laughs> oh no, we we you're you're talking to Bob and I. Of course, we know you're, we're your yeah. wrong demographic. So. <laughs> but no, I mean, it'd just be those, those kind of topics would be fun. So yeah, yeah. Tim, uh, real quick, tell our audience one more time where they can pick up your book, and uh, it's going to be reviewed in the next issue, issue sixty, the spring issue of Good Iron Greats. Yeah, so you know, it's really a, it's available on uh, you know online. You can get it at uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, you know, iBooks. Um, okay. You know, all of those, all of those kinds of places. And, and I, then there, I, there's again, a, a, a link to those. Sorry, I was again, just say, there's I, a link I, to those 
on my blog. Okay. So let's um, let's leave it like this. If you haven't read the book, I'd strongly urge our listeners to pick it up. Great book, great read. Like military history, it's a great book. You like football history, it's a great book also. Tim, thank you for being on the show today. I appreciate it. We'll be hey, in touch. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Joe, friends of the friendly strife, the doughboys and sailors of World War II Rose Bowls. Yeah, I like that title. That's really good. It's a great book, believe me. And uh, again, I I really learned a lot. Again, with regards to, I've never been overly big on bowl, different bowl history. It's just too much out yeah. there, and, and today, it, today it's a mess because there's what a couple thousand bowl games, you know, every year become meaningless yeah. after a while type of thing. But the, you know, the classic, the Cotton yeah. Bowl, the Orange Bowl, the Rose Bowl, those are true to me, true, yep. true bowl games, and the history behind them are right. are just incredible. Joe, we're almost out of time. We're going into our two minute warning and wrap up. I'm going to hand off to you. What did you pick up on in our show today. The image of a young mustachioed Bob Swick opening up a <laughs> wax pack of 60 called 65 tall boys, seven years old, uh, and pulling out a Joey Broadway Namath card. And fast forward a couple years, 53 years, and that card is still in your collection. That is an image that is in my mind. And you know what? I'm quite okay with that, Captain. That's a good image. Well, I I look at my 65 set. Actually, I, I look at my 65 top set, 66, 67. I look at my Philly sets of 65, 66, 67. The bulk of all those three sets are basically cards I had when I was a kid. And I could pretty much tell you which cards I picked, I had to buy over the years to complete the sets. And, I, and I, you know, I if I had to get rid of everything, I couldn't get rid of 64 to 67. The 64 to 67 fully run, and the tops run from 64 yeah. to 60. I couldn't. I, I couldn't. I can't get rid of those. Those are going down to the end. Yeah. Uh, those are those are sets to me that are true representative of my youth and great memories that I had, opening packs, collecting them, so on and so forth. I, it's just uh, the the memories are just unbelievable. And I, as I get older, I guess I appreciate it more and more. Where my roots were as far as collecting is concerned, as compared to what we see today in a, in a lot of cases, and, and I and I think in your generation too, Joe, you know, you have a lot of good memories of of when you open packs and make made stuff yep. and so on and so forth. And I, I think yep. that's what what a lot of the hobby is about. That really is. That really is. And it's not so much dollars and cents. It's more. The memories you have, the information you gather from it, so on and so forth. I could care less if my if my set grades out at anything. Nobody's going to encapsulate any of my sixty-four to sixty-seven cards, whether they like it or not. You know what I mean? So uh, yeah, it's just not there. Not there. Yeah. How many pieces of gum could you fit in your mouth? You know, as a young seven-year-old boy. <laughs> I, at the most, it was like. Three or, three or four at a time, and then my mother would be screaming at me. And believe me, I had a ton of cavities when I was a kid. And I still remember going to the dentist back then, the archaic dentist where they used to drill, and yeah, the yeah. agony of it was just, was just incredible. So 
It really, <laughs> I, I, I had a lot of, I ate a lot of sugared gum, and uh, I paid for it as the years go on, to say the least. All right, we're down to 30 seconds, 30 seconds real quick. We're sponsored today in part by MSB Sports Cards. Please check out their website, msbsportscards.com, and also in part by BSD Auctions. Check out their website, bsdauctions.com. All right, we're down about 15 seconds. We're going to be back on our second show uh, within a week or so, but we'll keep you posted on that, working on a few guests for that. Issue 59 is in the mail, Gridiron Greats. If you're not a subscriber, check out our website, gridirongreatsmagazine.com. Joe, thanks for being on, and we'll be talking. As always, thank you, Captain. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already... We have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.